0: Blog Talk Radio The priesthood was meant As a shadow of Jesus And the sacrifice he made for us Where he died once for all those again, our only high priest need forever. Left. The prophets foretold about his life. He tore the veil so we could enter it. Oh. i Uh,
1: in the next couple of weeks, uh, next week we will have a re telecast. So if you want to listen to that re telecast, you'll just dial in the number that we have right here, 1347 9340379. And subscribe to our uh, channel at uh, blogtalkradio.com backslash healing the letter X and outreach. That's blogtalkradio.com backslash healing x outreach. And uh, you can get notifications for our podcast. You can listen to us on iTunes also, and, um, let me go ahead and move that
0: down.
1: on iTunes you can subscribe to us through iTunes also, and uh, for you to listen to us on our list, on your listening devices, whether it's by PC or iPhone or Android phone. Um, what we do have in store next week is it's a retelecast of Doctor Daniel Wallace. Uh, it's been a while since I've, I've replayed that, but Daniel Wallace, if you don't know him, he's uh, one of the great esteemed uh, Greek scholars in our country. Uh, he serves at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. He's a New Testament Greek scholar, and uh, he's proficient in the Greek language. Uh, so um, that's going to be a retail cast from quite uh, some time. I think it was in the – I think we did the, re- the, the, the actual program on the – Inauguration, I think, uh, the second term of Obama, so it, it's uh, about six years old. But uh, I think you'll find it very encouraging and enlightening. We, uh, we tackle a couple of things that Jehovah's Witnesses have issues with on the text of Scripture with Daniel Wallace. Um, then the week after, we have a debate plan, and the debate uh, is with the. Uh, William Albrecht, who's going to be on the panel today, and it is with Musharif Hussein, and it will be an Icons debate. It will be a, on the a veneration of images, biblical and ancient is the title of that debate, so that will be the week after. Then we will have another retailer cast, and uh, the week after I'm going to do a live stream on at least 10 passages of the New World Translation. That I particularly find disdainful in this in its uh, in their translation of the Bible that Job Witnesses. So, ten really really egregious passage mm-hmm. <laughs> tra- translations of the New World Translation. That is the Silver Sword edition. So I'll be doing a live stream via YouTube on that week, and then I think the last the the nineteenth, I believe we will have Carrie Anderson. And her Mormon lineage goes all the way back to the very first vision of Joseph Smith. And uh, her family genealogy goes uh, to being one of the witnesses of the first vision with Joseph Smith and the financiers of the Book of Mormon. And uh, so that's going to be a really insightful podcast with uh, Carrie Anderson later on in February. But today we have a panel discussion and uh, this is going to be a really interesting discussion. It's a question that a lot of people have had in their minds. And uh, I think a lot of people have some misinformation about. And so I, I called up a good friend of mine who's a historian. And, of course, William Albridge, who I believe is a scholar in the field of ancient texts himself. Um, and so uh, I want to welcome, first of all, David Whitten. And he is an Army veteran and member of the Melchi Catholic Church. He's Orthodox by communion. He teaches at Savannah Classical Academy in Savannah, Georgia. And he's a Ph.D. student at Faulkner University. And I was just talking to David this morning about, uh, so uh, when are you going to get your Ph.D.? You almost, I know you've got to have it by now. I was wondering whether I was going to call him doctor or not. Um, so he says by April. So. Uh, congratulations to David on uh, ahead of time about getting his PhD. I know he's going to get it. You can also subscribe to his YouTube channel, and he uh, also has a blog site at davidwhitten And uh, if you're really interested in uh, Pascal, uh just all the great works of the ancient, not just philosophers but also theologians.
2: Uh, David right, Whippen,
1: I- it was a great for a great. Uh, exposition. What I you, you want to share more about your channel, David?
2: Uh, sure, I can. I
3: uh, your uh, your uh, biography of me is a little bit outdated, actually. Um, I uh, I now am uh, an English professor at uh, Savannah uh, Technical College, um, oh. and in uh, a PhD candidate. So yeah, I'm a, a little bit a little bit of a different position now, but still, uh, yeah, same idea. <laughs> Um, right, right, right. And my, uh, my website is com, and, uh, and so that's, I, I typically post videos and occasionally some short articles, and when I'm published elsewhere, I put the link there and that sort of thing. So,
1: Right, and, and I, I think that your channel is very prolific. You, you really do put up videos regularly.
3: So, um, I try to, I try to do, uh, my, my goal is to get out a video every, every day or every couple of days anyway. And, uh, some of them are on, uh, you know, religious themes and a lot of them are on, uh, philosophy and history and sort of the humanities a little bit more generally.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean,
1: that, 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 uh, just check out davidwitham.com and also his YouTube channel. Yep. Um, and also, we have William Albert, who's a Catholic apologist. He's from the Catholic Gate, and uh, all of you guys should know William by now. Hello, William, you there? I
4: sure am. Yes, Hope, hopefully they do know me by now.
0: <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I, I have a, I tagged you both on Facebook Live.
1: I wish there was a way that we could share screens. I I, I still haven't mastered that, but
3: at least people will be Well you wouldn't like my screen. Time. I'm on I'm on my phone and I'm I'm uh, I'm out so
1: <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, well, the same thing here is that I'm actually on a laptop so I don't know if you can share. I've tried to share screens on on a laptop and it has been ineffective. I can only do it on my on my iPhone for some reason. So maybe that's what it's intended for. Uh just want to welcome Spencer, Vic. Um that looks like Steven Marsha, and Yvonne for the podcast on Facebook Live. So, if anybody has any questions about this topic, um, all you do is dial in one three four seven nine three four zero three seven nine, and you'll press one, and that way I can see that you want to be unmuted. I can mute you and you can go ahead and ask away or share your comments. I, I see a, a couple of people already um, on the uh, studio um, that are listening by, by phone. So I see, uh, and I see William on Facebook live and I see Kay. So, um, that's great. You know, we're, we're trying to share this information on several social media platforms. And that's what I'm trying to do is expand not only to Facebook, but also to YouTube so that, um, people can benefit from the great content that I think we have because we have great guests. So, um, I, you know, one of the questions that has been asked and, uh, Well, one of the the, the things that I deal with a lot being in uh, in apologetics, specifically dealing with the Jehovah's Witnesses, is I have an an issue with a lot of escaping cultists. And frankly, I think David and and William will will understand this particularly, is that um, we encounter a lot of people, I know particularly people in the Protestant faith, that really um, have no idea of, what events happen when? <laughs> and and, it, and it's, it's usually a cause for confusion on their part, and it's usually also um, it's an identifying mark of when I know people don't know what the heck they're talking about. <laughs> so, yes, that's correct. Yes, <laughs> I, 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 let me let me give you an explanation. of it. Uh, really popular XJW couple Has a YouTube channel And me and William have done some Podcasts about this And um, uh, They were confusing of course The Nag Hammadi Gnostic Collection with the Judah Canonicals And uh, yeah. they were kind of <laughs> them All together in the same pool Of, of what they consider Lost books And that um, was <laughs> Sure sure sign that I knew that they didn't know what the heck they were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so um <laughs> and so we we addressed that a couple months ago. I think it was in the summer. Uh welcome James. Yes, we did. And uh yeah, and and, and, and that happens a lot with people that come out of the cults. <clears throat> they blame Constantine for everything in Christianity. Um, <laughs> they blame him. They, they believe that he inserted books into the canon. That he was in charge at the Council of Nicaea, and even forego the fact that the, the first Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the canon of Scripture. But uh, <laughs> it, exactly, the, yes. yeah, you don't know what you're talking about when you you say Constantine put in books at the Council of Nicaea, and and uh, and it was about the uh, of course the deity of Christ and. um and the, the triunity of God, the hamusia, the substance of God. So <laughs> this is why we do podcasts like this today. And um, I will say that me and these, uh, hey, how's it going, James? Me and these these two brothers, um, you, what you will find a little bit odd about me is um, uh, I'm a Protestant who actually accepts the due to canonicals. Has inspired scripture, and uh, usually uh, when I when I do that, I get the uh, the clarion call. Cross the tiber,
0: cross the tiber, <laughs> <So, laughs> and, and
1: and so you know, and, and and the fact is that there are Protestants. Who do actually believe the deuterocanonicals canonicals are inspired scripture, and 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 there are good reasons why. Now, I'm not here to convince people uh, why they should accept the deuterocanon canon as uh, inspired scripture, or how many books of the deuterocanon canon. I know that that the, the Orthodox claim one more book than the Catholics, and. Right. Um, and I, you know, I just, you well, know. several more, some, some of people. the communions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, and of course, uh, most Protestants have no idea how they came up to 66 books, let alone how the Catholics have 73 and the Orthodox have 74. Um, right. This is going to be partially a, 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 uh, a uh, I guess, a, a panel on, on the on the canon of scripture, but it will be mostly on the uh, the authenticity of the Bible that Jesus held. What was the Bible that Jesus held? And and one of the things, David, that I come across mm-hmm. is that um, a, a lot of people have this assumption that that the Hebrew is the oldest translation of the of the Old Testament that we that mm-hmm. we have today. And, of course, we know that the ancient Hebrew we have is the Masoretic text. Right. And this is, this is where you come into to play as the historian. If you could actually tell us um, a little bit about the Masoretic text and um, how, the, how that came to be. How, how is it that we came to the Masoretic text, the, the Jewish Masoretic text?
3: well it, it i mean the 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 short and sort of straightforward answer is that it emerges from the medieval jewish um scribal tradition and so the, the the Masoretic text as we have it today is i think the earliest texts date to the uh i don't know the the sort of middle ages the so eighth ninth centuries if i recall um and so it's yes the you know the the most of the books of what Christians would refer to as the Old Testament were originally written in Hebrew, but the oldest Hebrew documents that we have are actually somewhat younger than the oldest Greek documents that we have of uh, those Old Testament texts, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And and, and, and
1: um, uh, the Septuagint is something that a lot of people get to hear about, but they really, I don't think they understand that the uh, ancient uh, translation of the Septuagint is actually in Greek. Uh, could you tell us a little right. bit about well, the, the, the word <laughs> Septuagint for those that are listening means yeah. I think is it the seventy I believe.
3: It is, yeah. It comes from the Greek word for seventy. Yeah. And it it so, and it connects to uh so the the the, the, the I'll give you the legend, <laughs> um, yes. And then we can sort of get into the history. So the the legend. That lends the Septuagint its name of the 70 is that um, at some point, and there, there are various versions of the legend. Um, the, the most famous uh, is found in a letter that dates from uh, roughly the first century BC. Um, the legend is that uh, Ptolemy, who was at the time the, uh, the king of Egypt, these are the Greek successors of Alexander the Great. Uh, was collecting books for the Library of Alexandria and wanted a copy of the Jewish scriptures for the library. Um, he commissioned 70 Jewish scholars who, who, who were fluent in both Hebrew and uh, in Greek uh, to fulfill this translation. He didn't trust them for whatever reason, uh, probably the, the uh, insular sort of nature of the Jewish community at that point Uh, He didn't trust them to give an authentic translation, and so he had them confined, as the story goes, to 70 individual rooms, and each of them had to produce his own translation. And at the end of the period of time that he had allotted them, they all emerged from their room, and miraculously, again, so the story goes, all of the various translations agreed which is which would be truly a miracle if anyone has has ever engaged in uh translation. There are, you know, especially in languages that are as unrelated as Hebrew and Greek, uh, it would be very hard to find true yeah. two translations that perfectly match each other. And so the story is that that, that that is the uh the source of the Septuagint. Historically, um, you know, it it was probably uh, a process of uh you know, over many years and Uh, It was conducted probably by Jews in the diaspora who wanted because, Mm. uh, you know, Jews who lived outside of uh, the Holy Land um, spoke Greek. And they wanted to be able to read their scriptures in their own language. Um, And so it was probably a much longer process and a much more complicated process, you know, if you're looking at the history of it. But the myth is significant because it was so widely believed in the first century. Um, by, uh, by Jews You know this belief that, that uh, The Septuagint had been miraculously produced uh, And what, it, what that did Is it, it gave justification For uh, Greek Speaking Jews in the diaspora To view the Septuagint As inspired in its own right And therefore uh, An equal substitution for the Hebrew text Not a, not a, a You know not a worse version of it now, so I guess the wow. you know, the example that I could give is, um, you know, for for Muslims, the Arabic of the Quran is the Quran. Once you translate it into any other language than Arabic, it's no longer properly speaking the Quran, because it's wow. not the original words. And and that was that would have been a very similar sort of thing among Jews. You know, if it's not the Hebrew, then it's really not the Torah. It is an interpretation of the Torah at best. And so to attribute um, to attribute a divine inspiration to the Greek is to give it this standing that a translation wouldn't otherwise have. Does that make sense? Well, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. But but Jews, so, Jews believe that. that Jews oh, absolutely. Was, uh, yeah, it was. Oh, yeah, it was extremely widely believed. And if you were if you were uh, a a Greek and probably even a non-Greek uh, speaking Jew in the first century. Uh, the Septuagint was was widely regarded as uh, as having this sort of miraculous uh, origin and therefore a certain sort of divine inspiration,
1: so, which which uh, went it a great uh, deal of authority. Uh, now, now, and and now we have one one more text that I, I, I wanted to introduce everyone to. So we we've, we've covered the, the Hebrew, the Masoretic text, and I believe the Masoretic text uh, began its formation in the second century. Uh, right. So if I'm yeah. not, if I'm not an uh, error on that, please correct me. Um, then, then so we have the Septuagint, and the Septuagint um, was a translation that was created uh, before Christ was born, right? Was it? Uh, I believe. Yeah, it would be. It would be events. the
3: so the first century BC would be about the latest. Yeah, the latest.
1: Uh, but most scholars don't they date it much much earlier?
3: They do, yeah um, There is, and there, there's a great deal of debate and that's, and that's probably, you know When talking about the canon And, and what is the Bible And the various translations um, you know, that, That's probably One of the key points Is to dispel This Modern idea that we have when When we look at the Bible We're so used to looking at a single book Usually sitting covered in dust On our shelf somewhere, right? Uh, you know, we, yeah. we we pull it out to write uh, to write the new baby's name in it, and that's about it, right? Um, <laughs> and so we're 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 used to seeing we're used to seeing the Bible a certain way. We're used to seeing it as a single book, but th- this idea of Bible uh, Bible being a book, uh, I, I think, is important to get rid of because the Bible, even in in fact, the very root word, you know, think of the Spanish word biblioteca. It's a library. It's the same root word there. That biblio. It's the same root word that we get the word the Bible from. And what it means is library. And so the library here right. is actually a collection of texts, not, uh, not a single book, uh, never intended by the authors to be a single book, um, and, and not with uh, a single human author, not calling into question you know, a single divine author, but not having a right. single human hand that actually did the process of writing. It's it's actually this collection of very diverse texts written over uh, at least a thousand year period, probably more like a 1700 year, um, and, you know, assembled uh, through a very long process. <laughs> um, and so I, I think that's important to, get, to sort of get rid of that idea of uh, the Bible is not equivalent to uh, you know, like Moby Dick, it's, it's not one book written as one book by one author. It is a whole bunch of books written by dozens of authors over, uh, you know, some 1500 years and assembled into a single text over time, which is one of the many reasons wow. why we have these sort of continued debates over, uh, you know, some of the books, the Deuterocanonicals. These are, these are debates that go back to the first century. Um, yes. And so I think that's important to keep in mind
4: yeah
1: um, now um now here now this is uh i've been more introduced just as of late, which actually uh stirred up the reason for this final discussion is the aramaic shida and right. uh that that now um there I've encountered messianics who uh, actually view the aramaic Peshitta to be the uh oldest translation of the old testament but uh the only physical copies we have of the shitter, of course, don't date no no earlier than the second century. Um, right. Fact, and is this? Are
3: you referring to the Old Testament or the New Testament?
1: The Old Testament. Yeah.
3: Ah, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I've not so, heard I I've mean, not what, heard what, that claim about the Old Testament. I, I've heard that claim made about the new certain New Testament texts. Um, yeah.
0: But
3: yeah, that yeah that would be uh, the te- the the archaeological and textual evidence would point pretty soundly towards the Septuagint, or at least those fragments of it that we that we have, and the text yeah. that we have um, being older than the uh, than the Peshitta. So
1: now now um, now here's a, here's a, a question that I do have that has been um, asked of me before is that um, where does the Septuagint play? In the Dead Sea Scrolls Because the Dead Sea Scrolls Does contain some of the subject facts doesn't it And yet the um, Dead Sea Scrolls yeah, are was,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, The Dead Sea Scrolls are Were they They were, they were in
3: Hebrew weren't they um, uh, I don't know that they were in Hebrew You'll have to maybe, uh, maybe William can help me out with the Dead Sea Scrolls It's certainly not yeah. my area um, I think it's in a, a sort of Contemporary version of Hebrew, if I recall. Um, yes. I, uh, well, uh,
1: William, yeah. th- would you care to go ahead and tackle
4: that a little bit? Yeah, that's a really, really good question that you bring up in regards to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, just to fill in the audience a little bit, uh, when we talk about the collection found at Qumran, the reason the Dead Sea Scrolls play such a significant role is because if we look at this and if we try to compare. The texts found here, which were in Hebrew, yes, that's correct, if we try to compare them to what would be called the modern-day uh, Masoretic text, if you will, I, I say modern-day because I mean uh, the text that we have in today's modern day and age, if we look, we can find that the texts don't line up perfectly even with what is considered um, amongst the Jews, amongst those of, uh, uh, um, that, uh, that tout the great Isaiah scroll, even that has a variance um, when you compare that that was found at Qumran to the Masoretic text edition. So we can see that when we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, the texts that were found, we do have precedence to show that a number of these books that were in the Septuagint had originally existed beforehand in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. So when, when when these books were Actually, as these books have been uh, modern in today's modern day rejected, really Judaism has no precedent to reject it because a number of these books, um, with, with the great exception of Esther, Esther was not found there. A number of these books we can see did have a Hebrew original, although it seems like they, uh, like they have been lost. So the oldest, the oldest, and I would argue the best edition would be that found in the Septuagint. And I think that is why, I think that is why that was the Bible of Christ in the early church. Really, we see how, how uh, significant the Septuagint was, not just in, in, in the fact that they quote from it so much, but in the fact that if you look at the Septuagint and you compare the text to that of the Masoretic text, sometimes they're not just variants, sometimes they're whole chapters, whole, um, whole sentences that just – aren't found in the Masoretic Text, and yet Paul and yet Peter are quoting from the Septuagint. And some of the areas that they quote from, you're not going to find those in the Masoretic Text. So what does that tell you? That tells you that the Bible they were using – of course, when we say Bible, we mean collection of books. The Bible that they were using, the collection of books that they were using would definitely have been the Greek translation.
0: Is it also?
1: Well, it might be also the conclusion of many people when they when they reference the Dead Sea Scrolls that the Dead Sea it's not is not a complete um, collection of the Old Testament text. It's it's, uh, it's incomplete. Um, yes. While as the Septuagint that we have is a complete, um, it is a complete. Translation of the Old Testament text.
4: Yes, that's such a good point. Yes, that's true.
1: Yeah. So when when people reference the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think they try to reference it as authoritative, uh, but it is not a complete set of the Old Testament text. Uh, The only actual complete set of the Old Testament text, the oldest. Complete set of the Old Testament text. Let me let me actually correct myself. Would be the uh, the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Bible that we have. Right. Yeah,
4: that I, I, would be, and the, I like that to would to be
3: the oldest. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I'd
4: like to add one thing to that. Yeah, no, not a problem. Yeah, I'd like to add one thing to that because I have studied the letter to to, to Eriseus, uh, very very extensively, and just one thing that I would like to add. And I've read a lot of them. Um, scholarly opinion on this issue, there's a lot made of, of – uh, we, we can agree definitely that there is definitely legend to be found in the letter of Aristaeus. but when we come to the part of all of the translators basically, uh, I guess, kind of agreeing in what, what today's scholars would – some scholars would call like a legendary, miraculous type of thing, I don't know if it's really legendary what's being said there, because if you look at the original text as it comes down to us, it it doesn't make it clear whether or not all the translators agreed with each other word for word, uh, every jot and every tittle down to the line. What it seems to be really saying is that they agreed with each other in terms of the key doctrine. And if, if that is what is being purported by the letter of Aristeus, Really, really, there would be no problem with us getting on board with that because that particular portion doesn't really seem all legendary if we really break the letter down and then we see what the early church says in regards to what that letter has within it.
3: I think that would be more remarkable. No, I, I, I kid, of course, but you know, to, to get a group of believers <laughs> together and actually have them agree on right? doctrine, that would be – no, <laughs> that would be a miracle. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's
3: why the councils were all miraculous. How do you get yeah, 318 yeah, well, I, bishops to all agree?
1: Yeah, true. Yeah, well, I, yeah. You, you didn't even get complete agreement at the Council of Nicaea, so
0: yeah, <laughs> even though it was almost. You
1: know. That's correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You had a, uh, you had, you had your, your Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi in there too. You know.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah,
4: you did. <laughs> That's correct. Yep. yep.
3: Um, now, now uh,
1: yeah, well, I actually, you know, one of the books, of course, that um, actually convinced me about the do canonicals was um, whose Bible is it anyway? Uh, former Lewis uh, Pelican. Yes, Ursula Pelican, um, and, and that's not it's not an easy book to find. It's actually, I think, an outdated, out out of print book. But whose yeah. Bible is it anyway? I, it it's a wonderful book. It is. It's great, and. Um, once I read that book, from a guy who was a Lutheran, uh, and we know Luther had his problems with the canon. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. uh, I mean, forget the Old Testament canon. Luther had his problems with the New Testament canon.
4: So, <laughs> That's correct, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and to add to <laughs> um, that, I, I, I would just say one thing real quick. I would not attribute what I would call the mess of the canon later on I wouldn't attribute it mainly to Luther, and I think you know where I stand in regards to that. I wouldn't put all the blame on him at all. Oh
1: no, no, no! I mean, no doubt it's the second generation reformers that um, yes. were the ones that actually completely exercised the Bibles of the deuterocanonicals Luther wouldn't dare touch you yeah. know, the, the deuterocanonicals or what Protestants call the apocrypha. Yes, you know that's correct. As far as I mean, the Gutenberg Bible included the Judah canonicals. The original King James 1611 version of the King James Bible uh, included the Judah canonicals. Uh, it wasn't until the second generation reformers that we find a complete um, exercising of those books from the Old Testament. Yes. Um, you, know, uh, you know, even though I, I said, I'm a little unbiased when it comes to these, and I know that uh, one of the accusations uh, of Luther on the discussion of purgatory was the fact that um, his opponent was uh, quoting Maccabees, and, of course, that would be inconvenient for Luther as far as a discussion of doctrine on purgatory or purgation.
0: And so
2: yes. what's
1: the natural great thing to do is, well, just say, well, I don't consider the book of Maccabees. Inspired.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's the way you get out of that whole thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but of course,
1: you know, of course, um, you see um, a little bit of uh purgation in I believe it's first Corinthians chapter three. It talks about the robot yes, fire. Correct. Yeah, Protest- yeah, Protestants love to quote uh and try to say that the refinement fire is an obligation, but um I think it's a you know i think it's all about how we define our terms, and I think sometimes we're yes. just saying the same thing in different ways
4: uh, uh, that's correct
1: yes sir. I agree yeah but um but so um but uh the, uh i think uh what we what, what i what I'm encountering and I, and I, first of all, i want to encourage everyone who's listening in, if you have questions um, or you have some comments or your own uh, ideas about uh, what you believe is the most ancient form of the Old Testament or the Bible that Jesus held in his hands when he went to synagogue and and read the passage of Isaiah, you believe it was Aramaic or Hebrew, not Greek, uh, and you have your own views as to why that is the case, please go ahead and call in and um, the number is three four seven nine three four zero three seven nine and just press one so that I can unmute you so you can share your comments or ask your questions. But um you know the, 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 the tackle the thing that I tackle mostly especially with people coming out of the ex Jehovah's Witnesses that do retain uh, I guess they do retain Uh, Some form of their Christianity You know Or at least are trying to hold on To a form of Christianity Even though many of them You know Russellism Which is Unitarianism Um, Well hey Daniel If you've got a question Just go dial in the number But um uh, You know uh, The thing that I encounter Most really believe that well, if you want to be Jewish, you got to learn Hebrew. And so the most Jewish thing to do is to um, actually embrace whichever is the Hebrew. Or the most Jewish thing to do, I know one of the arguments I heard from our friend Spencer, who's in the Facebook Live room, is that, um, you know, Jesus used Aramaic, you know, on the cross. And so it's, it's one of those signs that no doubt... He favored the Aramaic, and therefore giving uh, the Peshitta some, uh, you know, validity as being the Bible, which Jesus held in the hand when he, uh, of course, quoted that prophecy concerning himself in the synagogues So, you know, there's this favoritism about some kind of Muslim performance, and, and a difficulty with believing that that the ancient Jews actually accepted Greek. And so, you know, that that's one of the things that I, I encounter is the fact that they have a hard time dealing with the fact that, well, Jews speaking Greek, that's kind of weird. You know, why wouldn't they just speak their own language? Why why wouldn't they have a translation in their own language uh, if it, it, it's Aramaic and Hebrew? Why Greek? Um, well, so, you because
0: know, David
1: and William, why, why would. Why would Jews favor Greek over Aramaic and Hebrew, or was it the fact that?
3: that
0: that's what was I, I available. I think it's
3: hard. No, I th- no, I, I I think it's a great question. So I, I think, I think it would be difficult to say. Um, I, I certainly could not say authoritatively um, that when uh, when Christ went into the synagogue and, and read uh, the scriptures, I, I don't know if I could tell you what language they were in. Um, mm. What what I what I can say though, and this is so this is what I can say with some historical certainty here is that the the Jews of the first century were willing to accept the notion of divinely inspired text being in Greek, and we know that yeah, that's because correct. of things yes. like the the letter of Aristeus. We we absolutely know that. It's important to remember that, and and I have and I, I want to say that. Um, I have a great deal of admiration for, uh, for the Jewish people because of, uh, their ability to persist as a people (laughs) for, you know, 3000 years. There are, there are no Babylonians to speak of today. Um, the, the Persians are not the same people and the Assyrians are not the same people. I know I'm going to get angry letters from an Assyrians somewhere. Uh, but ultimately, they don't worship the same gods and they don't follow the same traditions and they don't speak the same language. Assyrians today are Christians and uh, speak Arabic. Um, you know, they're not the same people in, in, in a meaningful sense. Um, the Jews are, though, and, and I think that's, that's profound. Um, but it's also important to remember... That Judaism, as it exists today, uh, in in a, in a great measure, uh, is the product of a, a sort of retrenchment that happened after the destruction of the temple in the year seventy. Yes, um, that's correct. When communities when communities come under threat, this is the thing that happens throughout history throughout the history of the world. Uh, cultures tend to be very open to new ideas, to changing ways of doing things, except for when they're threatened. And there was an existential threat to Judaism. The, the Romans nearly destroyed the Jews as a people. And when that happens to a people, they, there's a certain conservatism that, that sort of t- to set in, you know, where you, you run to the solid core and you hold as fast as you can onto that. And that's what the Jews did. and and really continue to do throughout the middle ages is, is to, uh, you know, as much as possible, look to what it is that unites them as a people. How do you maintain your identity when you are surrounded by people who not only don't practice your religion, but intermittently actively try to stop you from practicing your religion? Right. And, and so that's where this, this, this great focus on, um, you know, on following all uh, 613 of the laws, at least those that can be followed because many of them have to do with the temple, um, this focus on, on Hebrew, all of this arises in that post temple period. Um, and there's a sort of reaction against the Greek texts on the one hand, because Hebrew is a sort of unitive factor and also in, in, in because it distinguishes you from everyone else, because everyone else speaks Greek, whereas if we turn to Hebrew, we, we are distinguishing ourselves, right? We're, we're, we're maintaining our identity as a separate people. Okay. Um, and so that's part of it. Um, and then, of course, you know, much of it is, is a, a sort of reaction against Christianity, that, that the Christians are using the Greek very often becomes an argument against using the Greek. Um, and so there are, you know, we can't look at Judaism in 2019 and assume that it is identical to Judaism in 30 A.D. And I think that's that's that, an important yeah. thing to keep in mind. Yeah.
4: That, that's a great point. If I can add to that, that that is yeah. that, that is, I mean, David really hit the hit, hit hit the point perfectly, and he makes a good point that it seems like. It seems like such a harsh response to the Greek text comes from Jews that realized, hey, this is the text. These are the texts that the Christians are using. So really a lot of opposition was, was levied towards the text. I mean if you look at the very first um, declaration, if you will, uh, you can find it from Rabbi Akiva. And what does Rabbi Akiva do? Rabbi Akiva, he attacks not only the Deuterocanon, but he attacks the Gospels. And clearly we know exactly why, why is he attacking them, because both of them, both of those groups of texts were being used as a unified group of biblical texts by the earliest Christians, and Rabbi Akiva knew that, and that is why in his Tosefa uh 213, I believe, that is why he, he unleashes. That uh, condemnation, if you will, against the text, and I think uh, just to add to what David said, that that's a really, really good point. there's such harsh uh, attacks really, really were unwarranted.
1: so. so uh, well, I mean, said, that's the very reason why the Jews eventually did come up with the Masoretic text was because they wanted to distinguish themselves um, apart from what others were of course um reading from the same text. They were reading you know, uh the, the Christians were of course still following along with the Septuagint. Uh they were still of course uh absorbing the canon as it was presented in the Septuagint. Uh I mean anybody who can uh, uh, we, was it we go to Melito's canon Melito's canon uh really uh pretty much is, is closer to what we have as far as, as the Old Testament Bible with the Judeo canonicals
0: uh,
1: than what uh, the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text, of course, where the Protestant canon comes come from, uh, the Mas from the Masoretic Jews who were trying to distinguish themselves from the Christians. Um, so, you know, that is this because. Um, is this because there was no uh, I mean What we have in hand As far as the Hebrew text doesn't, It doesn't It doesn't match as far as age except just, Right yeah.
3: And I, I, that was perhaps a part of the question That I, I didn't really answer Because I, I went off on my tangent about <laughs> Other things but uh, yeah, so I think, you know, to get back to that original question, so what was Jesus, uh, he wasn't holding a book, we know that, right? Uh, and whatever he was holding in his hand when he was in the synagogue, um, you know, reading from it, it didn't contain, it was not a Bible. It was not, it was not a collection of 66 or 73 or 74 or probably even one whole text. Uh, it was probably more the case that it was a portion of uh, a single text. Um, yeah. because only so much, only so much writing can fit on a scroll, right? Um, right. and whatever language that was in to, you
0: know,
3: Aramaic, Greek, Hebrew, whatever we know, uh, I, I don't know the exact number. It's something, I don't know, 200 or something, uh, quotations from, uh, the old Testament, uh, are in the new Testament. And when we compare them, all but something, I think, I believe it's seven of them. All but seven match the text of the Septuagint. And so, whatever he was reading, whether it was Hebrew or Greek, it in in the Greek that we have in the New Testament, when he quotes it, it matches the text of the Septuagint.
2: So, yes, that's correct. Per, so
3: perhaps it was so perhaps it was Hebrew. Perhaps it was Hebrew. But whatever that Hebrew text was, it was not the Masoretic text. It was something yes. that is. Um, it was. It was whatever text was translated into the Septuagint.
0: Right, right. So, so. yeah.
1: So I mean, yeah. I mean that. Uh, yeah, we know that scrolls, like you said, only carry. But so. Uh, but uh, the, did they have? Do they have the, uh, any, I guess, scrolls or even portion of scripture? Well, at least we know that none survived. That might, if, 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 for example, one of the one of the big arguments is that the Gospel of Matthew was likely uh, in Hebrew, and uh, uh,
3: we don't have any, I guess,
1: we don't have yeah, any lies- physical. Ten- tangible mm-hmm. evidence that the gospel of Matthew was written in Hebrew they're,
0: they're, they're, it probably was not have been like, in,
3: in Hebrew so much as in again some contemporary version of Hebrew um, yeah. and the theory, the theory that Matthew was not originally Greek relies on um, some textual peculiarities in the Greek um, the problem with the theory first of all we have absolutely no physical evidence that actually indicates that that theory is correct. And, and so to, to, to formulate, you know, a whole theory about an original Aramaic Matthew based on, uh, one second century author who mentioned something like that and a few peculiarities in the Greek text of Matthew, it's, it's a big leap. Um, And those same peculiarities occur in other books of the Testament, that ones that we know for certain were written originally in Greek. There's no question what what language they were originally written in. Um, And there's, there's other explanations. You know, I mean, one obvious explanation is that the author of the Gospel of Matthew, when he's writing in Greek, is not writing in his first language. So think about somebody who is learning English for the first time, and the right. way that they speak, very often they, you know, we have, we have all these really weird, complex, nonsensical grammar rules in English. And so, right. in any, you know, a person who is speaking English as their second language will often forget where the adjective is supposed to go and how you make something past participle, and, because those are hard parts of the language. And, so, and that's what we right. really see in Matthew, I think. We see um, somebody who's who's not who didn't grow up speaking Greek in the cradle,
0: right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, and, and I
3: think one of the, one of the things that I always use as an
1: illustration or as an example of of the Jews is, um, for example, I'm Puerto Rican, right? I'm Latino American, and I live in America. Now, mm-hmm. um, it hasn't taken very long. My, my family is. My grandfather came into this country uh in the nineteen fifties um uh, he, you know in new york city and uh then he had his children which would be my, my, at least my mother and uh, and uh her siblings you know her my aunts and my uncles and yet um I don't speak spanish fluently and uh uh, sure. And I speak Spanish. Broken.
3: Uh, oh, it's the story understand. of the, the story of the immigrant. Yeah, by that by that third or fourth generation, usually the language is dead. So that you have any of it yeah. at all is is uh, a miracle. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and, <laughs>
3: to go back to our linguistic miracles do. again. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: This is what I use as an example for the Jews who yeah. fell under Babylonian captivity and and uh, were sure. captured by one nation. Another, you know, by the Chaldean king, uh, by Cyrus, and then, of course, Rome, uh, is that uh, within a couple of generations, first of all, we know that the Jews got so comfortable under captivity that they didn't want to go back to their homeland. Right. <laughs> That's, That's what true. Daniel, Daniel
3: Oh, right, that, and that's you know. that's one of the many reasons um there's a there's a wonderful book by uh Rodney Stark who is um I I I believe his field is actually the sociology of religion not the history of religion but what he's what he's done is sort of uh taken some of the the principles of studying, you know, um contemporary cults and contemporary new religious movements uh and applied them to you know looking at the ancient world and uh, there's a, a really wonderful book. Um, I believe it's called *The Rise of Christianity*. The author is definitely Rodney Stark. Though he's a professor at um, a university in Texas, and he uh, he explores the, the Greek-speaking Jewish diaspora and what happened to them. And in his theory, is is in fact that most of them became Christians. And it's for exactly the reasons that you laid out. That it was it was uh, it would have made perfect sense because it was the Jewish diaspora. Uh, we know, constantly struggled with how to be Jewish, and so to maintain, you know, ultimately what that means is to maintain some connection to your ancestral monotheistic God in the face of the society around you. And so we know that many of them, for example, gave up circumcision because the Romans viewed it as bizarre and uh, saw it as a sort of disfigurement uh, and so you have these Jews living in the diaspora who 've given up the, the you know what is ultimately the mark of the covenant um, wow and when and so when Christianity comes along, it was sort of the perfect it was it was the perfect way out. you could continue to, to to worship your ancestral God, but didn't have to do any of this stuff like circumcision and abstaining from pork that previously had been these problematic things that set you apart, so you could be wow. a good Roman finally and you could worship your ancestral god.
1: Wow, that, that and gives so, context yeah. the context to circumcision in the early Christian congregation in the first century.
3: Right, I, yeah, I right, he no it, it does. It's, it's sure, yeah. It, it, I think it, uh, you know, um, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating theory, and I, I think that Stark is is definitely onto something there.
0: Now,
1: uh, William, um, you you read Josephus, you know. Um, what does josephus have to say about the uh i mean was was he in rejection of the greek i know one of the things that I have encountered is that some of the uh these messian uh, believe that uh while it had to be aramaic the Jews would have never read Greek they would have never traced the Greek language um and i'm I'm surprised that our friend today not speaking up <laughs> and he had his, uh, his rabbinic Teacher but um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, what does Josephus have to say about first-century Judaism, and and uh, the writing of the Greek language or the Septuagint text?
4: That that's such a good question there, and I, I really do hope, hopefully, maybe your friend can call in because that is that is um, really really um, important and key to the discussion is you look at the earliest Jewish historian that we have a wealth of writings from, that would be Josephus. And really, really, Josephus is no friend of, um, of those that oppose the Septuagint's position, because even Josephus' canon does not match up with their canon. And secondly, what is even more shocking is when Josephus is, is uh, utilizing much of the text in his, uh, um, in his advocate, when he's utilizing the we find him utilizing the Septuagint. So, for instance, when we look at the text of Esther, and this is one of the most interesting things. And I, every time I dialogue with, um, with somebody that isn't aware of it, they just, they're just shocked. But interestingly enough, so Jesus, what does he use? He uses the septuagint form of Esther, and what does that tell you? That tells you that Josephus preferred that textual tradition to what at the time would have been, um, I guess, the, 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 um, the smaller version of Esther, which did not have uh, um, the mention of God within it. And, and again, a number of Jews saw that to be a big issue And if we look at Josephus, he does use that longer version. Josephus even incorporates one Maccabees. Can you believe that? And there's even much more in regards to that. But what Josephus says, what he says in regards to Esther, his usage of Esther lines up perfectly with what Clement would have used and which what all of the early church fathers, when they did utilize the Book of Esther, they utilized the longer form, which was the Greek Septuagint form. So Josephus, their earliest Jewish historian, uh, really is no friend to their position at all. When it, excuse me, when it comes to one, the issue of the canon, and it would come when it comes to number two, and what I would call even more important, the utilization of the text, because he utilizes Esther as scripture, and he utilizes the Septuagint form of it, and he also mentions one Maccabees and he uses it interspersed with what he calls sacred scripture so that in and of itself I think that that is incredible
1: you know what's interesting is that I do know that Josephus he was a critic of the various Jewish sects he was particularly a critic of the Sadducees he really did not like the Sadducees Um, he actually says you know complimentary things about the Pharisees and the Ascetic Jews and methinks that uh based upon what you just shared, that uh if Josephus would have lived long enough to encounter the Masoretics, that he would not have approved of their um restructuring the canon to uh omit uh you know, the books of the Septuagint. And so um he probably would have would have viewed uh, what they were doing as uh as really uh, anti-Jewish. You know, it was actually an anti-Jewish thing because yeah, they were correct. then rejecting um, the 70s uh, inspiration, you know, the fact that we already had 70 scribes who were inspired to the same conclusion. And uh, here his own kin, the Masoretic Jews, were now rejecting what they had, Fallen
3: under inspiration. Yes, so it's it's important to keep in mind that they, you know, the the Deuterocanonical books were rejected as divinely inspired scripture by the Jews because of their return to Hebrew in order to sort of consolidate their distinct identity as a people around the Hebrew language. But they didn't reject the contents of the books. And I think that's an important distinction to make. You know, the most, the most popularly known, certainly not the most important to the Jews themselves, but the most popularly known Jewish holiday uh, is almost certainly Hanukkah. And of course, the story of Hanukkah yes. derives from <laughs> yes. the book of Maccabees, right? And so yes. it's not that the content yeah. was rejected. It's simply that the divine inspiration of those particular texts was rejected because they were originally written in Greek.
4: Yeah, and that, that's a great point. I, I want to add one more thing. It's a piece of text, and I, I, um, I've never used this, and I've deb- Gus knows this very well. I've debated the canon so many times that I've never used it before, but there's such a very interesting part in Josephus that really anybody that would try to argue against the te- – even at the text – the, the textual tradition in Josephus' time, we know that some of the Jews were using the Septuagint as inspired text. Let's listen to what Josephus says right here. He says, and this is in in his Antiquities, he says, I write this concerning the antiquities of the Jews, because many Jews before me have composed the histories of our ancestors accurately, as have the Greeks also done it. They translated our histories into their own tongue and have done it accurately. I will begin my exposition where the writers of these affairs and our prophets leave off. I shall begin my history, and listen to what Josephus says. He's talking about where the prophets leave off, and he's beginning his history. Then he says, "I shall relate how Antiochus, who was named Epiphanes, took Jerusalem by force and held it for three years and three months." Well, guess what? Josephus is quoting. Who is Antiochus? Who is Epiphanes? One Maccabees yeah. one ten. And 2 Maccabees 4 7. That is what Josephus is, is hearkening to. This is a, a nail in the coffin to anybody that would argue otherwise. This is their oldest historian, and he does not support their position of the current shooter canon. And I think that that is an incredible piece of text.
0: Amen. Yeah,
1: it absolutely is. That's why, you know, if, if anybody knows, Josephus would know. And uh, no doubt he was absolutely honest in all of his uh, in all of his writings concerning uh, first of all the Christians and the Jews. So he, he would know what what was uh, approved scripture, and here he's quoting Maccabees. So that tells you that he would have absolutely uh, he would he would be uh, actually. Uh, Be viewing the Septuagint as a source of inspiration. Yes, and a bulkier canon. Uh, I want to once again invite everyone. uh, If if you have any questions or comments, uh, to call in at one three four seven nine three four zero three seven nine, or go ahead and if you're on Facebook Live, go ahead and put in your question or comment. In the chat bar there Concerning um, uh, Any questions Concerning the, uh, Oldest uh, text uh, Oldest uh, language That the oldest text of the uh, Old Testament Would have been in um, And I don't see anybody I, there's, a, a couple, there's a couple people in here But I don't see anybody really engaging uh, So you know this is This is one of the like I said, this is this is one of the areas where uh, most people have not read Josephus. Uh, most people, are even I think the basic thing that I always tell people is, um, and David would appreciate this being a historian, is that if you really want to know a little bit about history, just go ahead and pull up a historical timeline. And take a look at the events, and that will give you an idea. I mean, they are different timelines. Of course, you have Christian history timelines. Then you also have timelines which reveal, of course, the, uh, the, uh, the canon of Scripture and, and when certain scriptures came into play, when the Septuagint, when the Masoretic text began translation. And understanding those things and those events will give you an understanding of, you know, what happened times. Uh, so I, I always tell people just study different history timelines, and that will to avoid reading endless books. <laughs> start, it's a start. in a start and a bit of a cliff notes, cheesy understanding of the yeah. event you know, in their context. Um, but uh, you know, when people say. Uh, canon uh only if you understand that the canon was being decided in the second century well actually probably before that but that's when we eventually have some arguments about it uh come to play okay we do have two people popping up here so uh 830 you're on the air
2: uh, yes, I Hello. have a question for both gentlemen and I just want to know is there um anyone in the early church that talked about the Greek Old Testament
3: about the uh like the Septuagint?
2: The Greek Old Testament,
3: so the, yes. Right, yeah, so the, yeah, the Greek Old Testament, so when we say the Greek Old Testament, that would be the Septuagint. That 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 Greek translation of of some uh unfortunately uh lost uh, original hebrew um and yeah they um so when you're if you're looking at uh, just the new testament writings so you know christian writings from the the first and um perhaps from the very very early second century uh, largely when so when paul says you know scripture says or when matthew says jesus did this to fulfill this prophecy and then then they quote something from the Old Testament, almost every time what they're quoting is the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. Um, And then when you get into um, that post-apostolic era in the second and third centuries, uh, again, that's what you see pretty consistently uh, among the church fathers and other Christian writers is that they're quoting the Greek Old Testament.
4: Yeah, that's correct. And and to add to that... uh, we, we can see um, in the early church, one, when we get to individuals like um, Augustine, uh, who was aware of the, the Hebrew text of his time period and the Greek text, and we get to people like Rufinus, um, they specifically mention the Septuagint text by name. So one thing that I find really interesting for the the caller, to, a little piece of information is anybody that is familiar with 1 Peter – Something that is really interesting is that 1 Peter contains more citations and even more allusions to the ancient Septuagint text than any other, any other book. And catch this, none of them, none of them allude or cite the Old Testament that would match up to the exclusivity of the Masoretic text. And this this makes a lot of sense because, as the early church fathers attest, as Rufinus attests. Um, Peter had a scribe that most likely wrote this epistle for him. And his dictation of the Septuagint text shows a very strong familiarity with it. This would line up with what Rufinus says. Rufinus says that in the early church, the fathers believed that Peter's Bible that he used was the Septuagint text. And if we look at when Peter, in his first epistle, quotes Psalm 33 it is the version that lines up with the Septuagint version. So I think this, in and of itself, is really, really incredible when we look at the ancient history and the ancient textual witness. One Peter lines up with exactly what Rufinus is telling us about the Septuagint text in the early church. And I find that to be an incredible, incredible um, testimony towards the veracity of the Septuagint text. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and
4: then, uh, William,
1: in, in saying that, I, I do notice that um, one of the arguments that a lot of Protestants make is that they, they believe that the Septuagint is not quoted in the New Testament, And uh, but I found a, a, a nice little uh, Catholic website which actually goes on to show that the Septuagint is quoted quite often in the New Testament,
3: and Yeah. so... Yes. Um, yeah they do as are the for art canonicals and yeah, yes, and, yes, yeah correct. and so we we do we do have it's yeah it's it's um yeah if we're if we're looking at the text of the Bible that's being quoted in the New Testament and it only makes sense that they would be quoting Septuagint because they're writing in Greek, and the Septuagint is the available Greek translation of you know whatever original text there was um and so that's what you're dealing with. I think if we're looking at contemporary Bible translations, so if you're looking if you, if the question is, well, what translation should we get today then in English? Um, you know, I, I can, I can be, um, <laughs> uh, I, I can, I can point you to my favorite version, uh, which I, I don't think anyone would be surprised to know that it's the Orthodox study Bible. Um, <laughs> but but uh, there are, there are some, there are a number of, good translations, um, some of them under uh, um, Catholic imprimatur, so the New American Bible, I believe, is is one that does a very good job of drawing on the Septuagint and of pointing out in the footnotes places where the Masoretic and the Septuagint diverge from each other. Um, and so I think that, I think if we're looking at modern Bible translations, it's it's a great idea to get one like that because it gives you a sense of where the text of the Masoretic differs, from what we're actually seeing, quoted in the New Testament. Yeah,
0: that's what I have. Yes. about.
3: I have the Orthodox Study Bible. Yeah. Um, Which is a great, yes, it's a great fresh translation of the Septuagint. So. It is. Uh, there are some, there's really bad translations of the Septuagint. So I, I would, uh, so that's why I point towards that one.
1: <laughs> all three on the air.
2: Hi, guys. This is this is hey, Brian. Thanks I'm for calling. taking my call. Really good, really good. How, how's everybody doing? Happy New Year to everybody. Good. Happy New Year. Thank you. Um, I've uh, I've got a couple of questions for uh, both uh, both the guests. Um, just off the top, so that I maybe it'll inform uh, the rest of my the other three or four questions that I've got. Um, and more or less in a word, what's your uh, for both of you, what's your view of inspiration? Um, by that, I mean, uh, is it just uh, the ideas are inspired, or every every word, every letter? Go ahead, David. And then, and, uh, oh, thanks.
3: Okay. Oh, I I'll appreciate listen. you inviting I'll me look. first. No. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: I was I was hoping William. I was sitting there quietly. I was I did that thing. I, I you can't see me, but I did that thing I, I, I where can I sort of. Yeah, I'll go.
4: Yeah. I don't mind going first. I, I can go ahead. Yeah, go right. ahead. Go, go ahead, and you can go. Okay. Yeah, please. Uh, this is what. This is what, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take a lot from Augustine when it comes to this, Brian. What my belief is is that the original the original autographs the original ones every John until is inspired. That is what my belief is, and I believe that was uh, the teaching of the early church. I don't think, as as much as I've looked into the early church, I have never found anybody with a kind of KJV only mindset that every single um, translator was going to be uh, uh, protected divinely by by inspiration uh, under the Holy Spirit. But my opinion would be that the biblical text is inerrant. Every single piece of the original biblical text—that would be my opinion, and I think that that would be uh, the opinion passed on by the earliest church councils. I don't know if you want me to expand on that, or if that pretty much really gets to the heart of your question.
2: No, I just—no, I just—it was just the idea that I wanted to uh, see if—if—if uh, if, if both of you if we in agree inerrancy. that uh, okay inerrancy, yes. So, how about you, Dennis?
3: Okay. Yes, and okay. I would. So, um, in my my view of, of uh, biblical inspiration is informed by uh, so in, in in the Eastern churches we often talk about this idea of, of synergy um, and so of God and man sort of acting in cooperation um, and so if if I'm asked is the Bible inspired well yes but I think the the actual process is this thing that we that it, it is synergy it is that human beings are you know acting under um, you know under divine inspiration. Uh, to accomplish the ends of God, uh, but that there is something of man in there, and that there is something of God in there and so I, I see the biblical texts as as often containing our um, the reaction of human beings to the presence of God and the presence of God. Does that make sense to you yeah,
2: would you go as far as William though well, maybe not uh, as far as every jot and fiddle it 's a uh,
3: I think that's a much more complicated question. I think, I think it would be hard to find what every jot and tittle was. Is the Bible, um, is right. the Bible in the an authoritative? So in the so. Right. Is it, sure. Yes. Yes. Um, where are those are, but again, we we have to work with what we have, and, and unfortunately, we exactly. don't have that.
4: Yes.
3: You know. Yeah. That, that's um, okay. So, yeah, I
4: meant to do but, the but that the Bible is. Have, yeah. Mm-hmm, but
3: that the Bible is nonetheless, um, an inerrant and authoritative. Uh,
2: source for faith and practice. I absolutely agree. Okay. Oh, okay. So that that kind of sets the stage, at least for the rest of the questions. I'll I'll know for sure where you're coming from. Maybe a little better. Uh, mm-hmm. The second question is there is a, uh, especially in Protestant circles, there is some something I maybe I would call um, sacred language theory, and by that I mean that somehow uh, Hebrew. And the uh, the uh, Greek of the New Testament, at least, and perhaps of of the Septuagint, are uh, sacred languages. And this third part is partially for for William. Um, what about Latin? What about the Vulgate? So. Do do well. Might as well have each each of these questions start with uh, with uh, the same gentleman. So, William, do you what do you think of this theory of uh, Hebrew and uh, and Greek uh, biblical Greek, and uh, and in your case Latin being sacred languages that are um, a special deposit divine deposit from
4: God. And, uh, and then Ryan, I, that, that, I think that's such a great question let, let me Let me go ahead and try and answer it as fast as possible so so we can have time for many questions. Um, first off, let me touch upon the Greek and the Hebrew. Uh, the earliest Jews and the earliest Christians definitely did believe that we could have texts in both languages and have both of them inspired. If you look at what Augustine says. Augustine is aware of the Hebrew text of his time period And aware of the Greek text of his time period And he calls both of them inspired Let, Let's be clear about one thing The text that Jerome and Augustine had Hebrew text would have varied from that of the Masoretic text We just don't know what, how that text was Because we really don't have it anymore It would differ So, But if we look If we examine what the Septuagint says For instance, looking at Matthew 1... Matthew 1, when it, when it says uh, a virgin shall conceive, that is hearkening to Isaiah 7, and it's hearkening to the Septuagint version. So what is Matthew saying? Matthew is saying that this is inspired. He, he's, he's quoting it as if it is, as it's inspired. So not just that. We can even find um, Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 7, quoting the Septuagint version of Isaiah. So it's Christ, who we believe to have been God incarnate if he can quote a Septuagint text in Isaiah 29, as he can quote that as authoritative scripture, when he's talking about, when he says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? And as it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. If he can quote that as authoritative scripture, then we can be on board and say that the Hebrew and the Greek can be inspired. And before I move on to the Latin, let me add one thing. If we look at Clement of Rome, Clement of Rome himself says that Jesus was aware of this text and that these are his exact words. So I find that to be very significant there. Hopping on to the Latin, the Latin, we can look at the Vulgate, and uh, again, the person at the center of that would have been St. Jerome. So whereas we can say that Latin is a sacred language, we wouldn't put the Latin on par with, let's say, the Greek Septuagint text, or or what have you. Because Aladdin, obviously, is a translation. It would have been a translation, but it would have been a very good translation done by Jerome. Because remember, even though Jerome had his reservations on certain books, he still, remember what Jerome says, he submitted to the judgment of the churches, and he translated the Septuagint. So the Vulgate has the Septuagint books in it, translated, the Deuterocanon, translated into Latin, and a very good job at, at, at that, if I may add. So even though we can say Latin is a sacred language, we need to distinguish that when we talk about that, the Latin Vulgate is a translation. So that would differ from what would be, let's say, the Septuagint, who, even though we know the Septuagint in and of itself, Brian, many of those places are a translation. Some of them we know are not. Some of them are original, some portions, for instance, in Esther. We know some of those portions did not exist before in Hebrew, but we know that the earliest Jews and the earliest Christians believed them to have been inspired canonical in the sense of inspired scripture i I hope that I was able to answer your question sufficiently
2: yeah uh, that was that was a great answer, but before David uh answers the same question i want I wanted to ask you one other thing. <clears throat> And this is about sure. the Catholic view of of the Vulgate. The sure. view that you just disposed. Would you say that that uh, it is a post Tridentine or a post Vatican II um, uh, view, Catholic view? In other words, in the Middle Ages and up until Trent, would Catholic scholars say? That the Vulgate was um, in some sense inspired in other well, words is, is your is your view that you just I know you're getting a at. more modern Catholic view or or what okay.
4: no ahead. i don't think I don't think it is, and i, I don't think it is I know what you're getting at um, and I've heard the argument brought up many times that uh, that the church sort of um, uh, sort of made the Vulgate uh, an official the official Bible of ah. the church in the sense that mm-hmm. it is the ultimate uh, no. If you look at what Trent says about the Vulgate, if you look at what the what the Catechism of Trent says about the Vulgate, they say the Vulgate was the best, the best Latin that was available at that time. It is not saying that it is on par with 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 let's say the oldest manuscripts. Remember, it's a translation. I, I don't I don't think, I think what I'm hearkening to would have been the exact same thing um, Trent would have said, and the reason being is because we can see. Uh, Johann Eck, in particular, when he's dialoguing with Luther, he does mention a number of times he quotes directly from the Greek, not from the Vulgate itself. For instance, when they're talking about the Maccabean books and they're dialoguing, if you look at what Eck does, Eck does not always hold himself to a Vulgate. So it wouldn't be a modern-day type of view. It's even a view you can find at the – excuse me – at the Seventh Ecumenical Council. So – yeah, it wouldn't be something that barely came up. It, you can see the Vulgate is frequently used, but again, remember, it's a translation, and the Septuagint is also used, and even, even believe it or not, even though we haven't delved into it very much in depth, even the Masoretic text is used and compared when we're talking about modern-day uh, biblical translations.
3: It's, it's worth keeping in mind on that same point that, you know, the... the, the I think we, we used the Catholic Church as synonymous with the Latin Rite, and of course that was yes. where the Vulgate was being used, but throughout most of the Middle Ages, there was one church, and the Eastern Church was using the Septuagint, and there was no attempt to sort of impose the Vulgate
2: on the Church of Constantinople exactly right. so what what's your view david of the the sacred language theory that uh some extreme protestants uh i,
3: it's, I mean it, it's an interesting idea but i i don't it's not it's not an idea that would be supported by the church fathers and honestly it's part of the you know the reason why I was hesitant to even sort of acquiesce to the idea of uh you know, the autographs and, and getting into these, these very sorts of particulars. You know, as William said, when you're looking at how the Church Fathers treat these issues, um, it would be very hard to find anything that resembles something like KGB-only uh, 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 movement today, right? Um, it, this, this sort of overly analytical approach, it's, it's simply not reflected in the way that the Church Fathers treat scripture. You know, when when Origen, and and maybe a bad example because not technically a church father, but I think nonetheless representative of the intellectual milieu of that time period, when he takes the various translations of the Old Testament and places them side by side, the point is not um, look at how much better this translation is than another. It's let's get a look at all the translations so that we can have a sense of where these different translations differ and that we can, we can then sort of, uh, you know, a- then we can sort of go to, into
2: analyzing them and dealing with them. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. Uh, now here's the next question. Um, the, um, uh, these differences uh, in the Septuagint with the uh, Hebrew text, some of them are quite significant, as, as has been pointed out already. Um, just as an example, one that uh, comes to mind to, to me is um, in 1 uh, Corinthians, where St. Paul says that death is swallowed up in victory, he says. Mm-hmm. The Hebrew text says death is swallowed up forever the hmm. Septuagint says envicos uh in en uh, en right. victory so paul is is quoting from the septuagint oh, right. there right and, and right and think about how that happens and i think that's
3: what you know that's sort of what i'm getting at is think about how that happens to translated texts over time because every word just take the one greek word the word logos and think about all of the different i think i think um uh, if i remember L- uh, lsj the very commonly used uh Greek language lexicon lists something like sixteen definitions for the word logos, and and they're they're often in the English wildly different translations. So everything from word to idea to uh, you know a whole gamut of things. Reason is another translation, um, and and they're all sort of loosely related, but those are very different concepts when you put them into the English. If I use the word if I use the word word to refer to an idea that I had, you would think I was weird. Or if I said, did you just hear my idea when I'm actually saying, did you hear the words that I just spoke? You would think I was strange, right? <laughs> and so how that happens over time, if you're translating text between you know, several languages, is this, this long process of nuance being changed and lost. Um, and so, being able to be aware of all those different nuances, all those different possible translations, I think is is really powerful.
2: Right. So, um, this. Let me go back. I, I there was something else I wanted to ask uh, about um, about the uh, the Vulgate. William, in your, uh, I, I, this is something that I'm, I, I don't know anything about. i I've, I've never checked on this at all. Would you say that the Vulgate is closer to the Hebrew text of the Old Testament or the Septuagint? This is I an important question for for Protestants yeah. to think about if they're if they're considering yeah. uh, Catholicism at all.
4: I would say that the, all the evidence points to the Septuagint, and the reason being, if we look at remember remember after Jerome goes to Jerusalem, Jerome seems to have an issue with not just the Greek, but with the whole Old Testament translation into, into Greek, uh, it seems like he's just so bothered by the Jews just hammering, and, hammering at him and hammering at him, but Jerome in and of, its, uh, in and of it himself, recognizes that the Bible of the church was the a longer canon in Greek. So remember what Jerome says when Jerome is translating these texts into Latin, he says that he is doing so at the judgment of the churches. So he's and, and when he says this, he then begins to quote the the longer part of Daniel, which would have been the Septuagint version. So his text would line up much better with the Septuagint because he's actually translating a number of these books directly from the Greek into the Latin. So Whereas in some portions it would line up with uh, obviously what we would call them um, the Masoretic text, because uh, in in certain instances, overall overall Jerome, even though he did it begrudgingly, he says he did it at the judgment of the churches. Um, it would line up better with the Septuagint.
2: I've got a bit of a cutting ass so there. Is is, right. Oh, I'm sorry. When I, I've got a bit of a cough, yeah. so when 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 you gentlemen are talking, I mute myself so so that I don't cough you Oh, talk okay. Not a problem. Oh, go, go, go ahead. Not problem. Go ahead. Well, the David. thing I, th- I think God, I think Gus will be mad
3: at us, but it seems to me that what William is hinting at there is the that a lot of this a lot of this debate really hinges on some of the problematic aspects of of sola scriptura, um, mm-hmm. because it you know when you say he's subjecting. This to the opinion of the church is ultimately what you're referring to is the received tradition. Um, yeah, I mean,
4: he and to be I, I mad think... about that. <laughs> yeah. he, was, he was not happy at that. Yeah, because we right. know Jerome was upset at that. But regardless, remember what he says, David. He says, "I'm I'm submitting to the authority of the churches, basically." Right. He uses of yeah, the, and that's the, right. The and that's I think yeah. right.
3: And I and I think that if we, I think if we if we're looking at the Bible. Through a lens of a received tradition Rather than through a lens I, I think, I guess, and this is why I, I you know, started very early on In this discussion, sort of trying to Dispel this idea That I think is the popular notion Even among those who know the facts There still is this, this Treatment of the Bible as if it were A monolith, as if it were A single text that dropped Miraculously out of heaven, I, I call it a, a cargo cult sort of attitude Towards the Bible and i think that that certain aspects of how sola scriptura functions today that it it exacerbates that that sort of cargo cultish attitude you know it washed up on the shore and this is what we have when right. you know it it matters much less whether uh whether the text says victory or um what was the other what was the hebrew that you gave earlier i forget
2: the hebrew word but it, most so, people translate right. it forever
3: there you go yeah so so it matters much less i think whether the the translation is forever or victory when um when you're not looking at it again in that sort of again i would say cargo cultish way of looking at it instead looking at the wider really looking at all of these texts as part of a received much bigger tradition um in which to interpret these texts and so i can I think a Catholic or an Orthodox could look at, is it forever or victory, and say, wow, it's really fascinating that when we translate it this way, it has this nuance and meaning, and when we translate it this other way, it has this nuance and meaning, and that both of them are wonderful because they both tell us something about the received tradition of the Church, because both of those are our heritage as Christians.
2: Okay, now this next question is and, and uh, Gus, am I going on too long here? Can I squeeze in one more question? It's a specific thing. Go ahead, about the Septuagint. No, you're good, but go ahead. We're we're okay. Okay. Um yep. these so just zeroing in now on these differences between the Hebrew text and the Septuagint, and there are some big ones. There's um in fact one of the most um, most um uh, famous text from the old testament is um uh, uh the the name of, of of the savior isaiah 9 6 the, the big long name that has if you if you look if you re- read a translation from the hebrew it differs very widely from what the septuagint says i think uh, instead of calling him mighty god it Calls him an angel, calls him a messenger or an angel mm-hmm. in the Greek text. But anyway, the point that I'm getting at here is, um, I've I don't know if uh, there are scholars who have uh, come up with this theory. I, I assume there must be somebody because none of us are uh, are that smart to come up with anything original. <laughs> but um, I'm wondering if uh, the Septuagint, um, especially being a translation for. Jews that of the of the dispersion, um, if they uh, if they if if the Septuagint followed the targums in in some some places. In other words, um, as you gentlemen are aware, when the Jews when they came back from the Babylonian captivity, many of them. Couldn't speak. They would lost the, their their ability to speak uh, Hebrew, and the uh, uh, Ezra and, and Nehemiah and others uh, provided them with um, uh, uh, these targums or these explanations of the of what the text meant in in sometimes in Hebrew the Hebrew that they were speaking now or in Chaldean, which they picked up in during the captivity. So I'm wondering if the Septuagint, some of these these uh, uh, diversions from the Hebrew text in the Septuagint, are derived from the from the Targums. Um, it, it seems like it would make some sense since Septuagint came after and it was for the the diaspora. So what do you guys think about that theory? And uh, do you know if any. Um, any real scholars uh, have uh, an opinion that uh, is is like that, or or, or differs from that. Um, so go ahead, yeah, Albert go Demetrio, just, just go go with the same uh, same order, uh, Albert. What do you think about it? Uh, and then and, and then I'd like to hear what David has to th- say about that as well, please.
4: Yeah, yeah. I, I gave a course about three years ago in Germany. So th- <laughs> that's really the only reason I can name drop scholars that do believe that. Uh, Zacharias Franken was one I know another scholar uh, I believe his last name was Shur- or Churgin. I forget how to pronounce it Would have held to that theory as well um, For me to answer you Brian Really I'm, I'm going to kind of disappoint you I really don't know either which way um, We really don't know There really is no way to know Other than I guess scholarly speculation um, If you were to ask me Based upon what I have read in Esther, based upon what I have read in, uh, I guess, wisdom, um, books that obviously, uh, I guess, maybe not what you're, you're referring to, I my own personal opinion, I would say uh, I lean more towards no than yes. But there are some scholars that really, really believe strongly that that would be very probable. For instance, Frankl, uh he has a whole... Um, whole book, booklet, a whole booklet, a very thick, almost almost as big as a book, arguing that um, that there is clear, clear evidence of that. Uh, for me, I really, either which way, I, I really don't know. I lean more towards no, but in the sense that really I lean more towards no because really, at the end of the day, there's just no way to know other than really just speculating. I'm sorry. I wish it, I wish it could have helped you more with that, but I mean, I, I think you understand yeah, sounds, what sounds I'm good. getting at. Sounds good. Yeah, I would have and to David? second.
3: Uh, yeah, I would have to second William. I, mean, I, I really, I mean, I can't say with any um, certainty. It's certainly not a matter that I've spent much time in studying. Probably William has spent more time than I have. I, I think the only thing I can add to that is that all translation is at its heart interpretation, and so it may not be that they were dependent on the targums, but um, certainly if the interpretation of the targums were an influence on
2: them, then certainly it was an influence on their translation. Okay. Thank you very much for the uh for the time uh gentlemen. I appreciate your answers and uh thanks for letting me uh ask so many questions uh today. Gus, thank thank you very much. How long is the show going for by the way? How much longer?
1: Uh not we not very much longer, so I'm going to do a last okay. Last call and uh and then uh if no one desires to uh call in then we're going to go ahead and call it for a day. <laughs> Um so I uh, just want everybody to know if you have any questions or comments. Uh the number is three four seven nine three four zero three seven nine. Uh and press one so I can unmute you if you have any questions about uh, the old testament text. Uh we, we kind of went went a, a couple different ways. You know, uh I, I did wanna ask a question though, um uh, uh Brian, you uh, brought into the, the issue about uh, uh, sacred language, and I thought he was going in another direction, but I, uh, not in the direction that we as witnesses, Jehovah's Witnesses, had um, kind of like a, uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm a myth, at whether it's actually correct history or not, it, usually it's not that it's the Jehovah's Witnesses but um, I thought he was going into the direction about the Vulgate, the Latin in the sacred language because uh, uh, some of the reformers, at least what was told, were burned because they had English Bibles. Um, <laughs> and I'm not even sure if that's correct. Uh, I think that that might be some Protestant propaganda. I think that they, the reason why they were burned with their Bibles was because of doctrinal difference, and so maybe not so much right. because of them having a a English translation of the Bible, but more so of having um, uh, what the church viewed was a heretical view of the Bible. So, <laughs> am I am
4: I correct on that? Yeah, you 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 are correct on that. It definitely would not have been. Um, because they had the Bible in in another language. Because remember, throughout history, the the text has been used. It has been used in um in varying languages, yeah. and and really, really, um that that that's not a good argument. I've heard that a lot, but it seems more like uh like a really radical propaganda than anything logical at all. Yeah, it sounds like Jack Chick type territory. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do want to add one thing that we, we we were not able to talk about earlier, just really quick, and it's it, a, a little uh, interesting tidbit for the audience. Can I add something real quick? Or, or earlier, no, there, there is one there is one interesting thing, and I would point it to the audience to do a little bit of research on it. In Acts seven fourteen, in the Septuagint version uh, and the New Testament, the Septuagint version that it's harkening to, excuse me, and the New Testament we, we read. Of Jacob having 75 descendants, rather than the 70 that is found in the Hebrew Bible. And Hmm. this was considered a very important, um, as we look into the Middle Ages when the church um, the medieval fathers are dialoguing on that, we find a lot of commentaries that are pointing out, excuse me, how the the Greek Old Testament was definitely the version being used here. Because Acts 7.14 is hearkening to that. And that was so significant that later on down the line, it seems like a Hebrew manuscript from a later date fixed this error. Era. And now there is actually a Hebrew manuscript where it has the correct number being used, which would line up with the number found in the Septuagint and the number used in Acts 7.14. And I think that goes right to the heart of the issue that really, really, the Greek text was what they relied on primarily, and this is what the author of the book of Acts would have been relying on. Um, I, I also I wanted to
1: just uh, give a clarification for you guys. I know um, you guys are thinking that I might be a little uh, <laughs> perturbed about Sola Scriptura. I, I'm, a, I'm a Sola Scriptura guy, not a solo. Ah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: but it's all right I, you know the the wider point that I was making and i I think but
1: I do agree with you guys there are uh there are certain branches within Protestantism which have a cultic ad, adherence to the Bible as right. uh the end all be all and absolutely ignore the fact that the church universal has a say to say in, 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 in and and I think teaching.
3: I think that that does something to uh, you know I, I think we have to as as Christians, we have this really wonderful really diverse really wide ranging heritage, and so as Christians in the 21st century I, I think it's important that that regardless of orthodox or Catholic or Protestant, to be able to look at the Vulgate and the Peshita that's used by the Syriac and, and the Assyrian churches, uh, and the Septuagint and, and you know, the Russian translations, so we look at all to be able to look at all of these things and to see them as, as in some sense, ours. And in, in, as things that, um, you know, things that were given to us by, by God and by our ancestors in the faith. Um, you know no. and, and the sort of the, the the desire to to find one one correct way of saying something to the exclusion of all others i I think disregards how wonderful and how big that heritage is yeah and
1: and and, and, and no matter what, Protestants actually do care about the voices of the past. I mean, just like right. uh, Protestants they'll quote Spurgeon or Jonathan edwards or or, or you know Protestant scholars. I will say this. You know what? This is actually going to be a video I'm going to talk about tomorrow, and um, on YouTube. And I was going to I was going to talk about it, but I'll share a little bit about it today. Is that there is a propensity within the Protestant Church to discount Catholic Christianity as Christianity, and and I and I'll say that because of this. I, I used to go to an evangelical free church, and uh, my pastor mentor was Pastor Tony Arnold. And he posed this question to me this way because at the time I was, um, you know, I've evolved as a Christian, and uh, I was one of those radical uh, jack-chick left-behind fundamentalists when I first became a Christian. Uh, But um, uh, the thing is that he says, are you going to say that Ignatius wasn't a Christian? Are you going to say that uh, uh, Francis? Of Assisi wasn't a Christian Are you going to say that Thomas Bradwardine Or Catherine of Siena Are not Christians Because they were all Catholics And guess like, what yeah.
0: Luther was a Catholic
1: Calvin was a Catholic <laughs> All the Catholics that We call reformers Were Catholics So uh, <laughs> That's true so yep. you, you can't discount uh, That Protestantism uh, Whether And It's it's, it's even come to the point where even uh, Rome has come to the point where it says we are separated brethren, where it won't completely discount Protestants outside of Christianity, and I think that that's that's important. And it's it's even more important is that Protestants don't become ignorant of their past and realize that Christianity didn't start in the year 1500. (laughs) You know? Right. Right. (laughs) You know? There are still another 1,500 years where there weren't Baptists and there weren't uh, Lutherans and there weren't Presbyterians and still God's great story called His story, His story, <laughs> was going on and it was just a, yes. in the Western Christianity and, and one was called Orthodoxy and the other one was called Catholicism right. um, and both were called Catholicism, both were called also Universal. So, this this global universal faith has been pressing on since Jesus' right. time, and to discount what happened before the Reformation as Christian would be ignorance and foolishness. Agree. So that, that's, that's correct. A, yeah, that's actually something that I'm actually was um, gonna. You, well, you'll see. Out, I'm putting up the video. But by the <laughs> way, I just gotta say something, David. I've been watching your
0: videos. That's huh. your library, bro. <laughs> You got is, a yeah. massive, <laughs> massive library.
1: Oh, Where, I, I mean, know. I'm not looking gotta, forward to having to move.
0: <laughs>
1: you got. I mean, how do you find the room? You can't even buy another book. <laughs> we, well, I have. I have. I have
3: two living rooms in my house, and one of my living rooms has become my library. So that's the. Uh...
1: <laughs> I just look behind you, and it's like uh, uh, Library of Congress. <laughs> One day I'll get to reading them
3: all, I'll tell you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have a couple of those. You buy books and then you you might read a page or two and you never get back to it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Happens to
4: all of us. Happens to all of us.
1: (laughs) Yeah. What did Erasmus say? Uh, was it buy more books or something like that?
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. It was. Uh, what was it? Buy. It was. You know, food or books, right? And that was the uh, yeah. Yeah. food or
1: books. That's right. That was the Rasmus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have thoroughly enjoyed today's discussion. I'd really thank uh, Ryan for his contribution and coming in and asking questions. And yeah. um, uh it's it's been a blessing. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and say. Uh, uh, tata, gentlemen, and I just want to thank you both for your contribution. And and this will uh, one day actually go up on YouTube. I, I have so many stuff, so much stuff I want to put up on YouTube now. But uh, uh, I just uh, hopefully someone of a messianic nature will hear this broadcast and it will bless them and help them a little bit along the way. As far as uh,
4: and and, yeah. and we have also I'm said, Gus, we have also said. That, that we're open to having a, a debate on this issue So I, I just want to put that out there That I am willing to debate any of those individuals That have posted um, Too bad they couldn't call you today But I, that that is still open I'm still open for debate if they ever want to So uh, Spencer Caston And your uh, rabbi You heard
1: that
0: <laughs> the gauntlet has yep. been I'm, call-
1: <laughs> I'm calling them out
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: But uh, uh, you all have a wonderful blessed day and uh, you everyone Thank has, you. Once again, uh, don't want to lose the focus. Please pray for those in the cults, and uh, pray for actually ex-members of the cults who are constantly distracted by uh, Google and Wikipedia. And, uh, I just want to get a Christian history timeline, get a timeline on Bible translation, and study that, and that will help you a long way. So you all have a blessed day. Bye bye.